Hello and welcome to What Goes Around. My name is Deb Grant. And my name is Eamon Murtagh. It sounded serious then, didn't it? It did, yeah. Like news round. <laughs> news round? <laughs> news round? <laughs> news night, <laughs> Sorry, yeah, news <laughs> night. John Craven. My mistake. <laughs> On the show today, we have DJing legend DJ Paulette, recent Lifetime Achievement Award winner, Manchester legend, worldwide DJing legend, I would say. Eamon talks to DJ Paulette. And she was lovely. But before we talk to the lovely DJ Paulette, who is very lovely, as I have said, we do spend some time talking to each other, Deb, and we talk about going to gigs, and I talk about a particular gig that I went to that fair enough blew my mind. But that's not all, is it? Today on the pod, Eamon is talking to Simon Price about his book, Curapedia, all about the magic of the cure, all about Robert Smith and his antics, which to a baby goth like me, and like you, Eamon, is yeah. pretty exciting stuff. Let's pod! Let's pod! Oh my god. <laughs> Eamon, you're living in the I past. So long ago, sorry. Dear Deb Grant, please tell us what is going around. I've been thinking a lot about music festivals and mm. the ones that are coming up this year. I have this fancy, I don't know if you know, but I have this fancy new job. Um, I have heard there's something and, going on. Um, there. Yeah. And. You know, it's focused on new music and one of the things that's important for our show, going to lots of gigs, which is great, fine. And Manchester is so easy that I've been to more gigs. I've been to more gigs in the past half year in Manchester than I probably went to in London in the previous five years, just because it's not such a pain in the bollocks getting home. But also, of course, you know, you've got nothing else to do, have you? 100% true. Although I didn't have that much to do when I was in London either. That's true. But the thing about London is it's not... what I How I always describe it is like, what I liked about London was knowing there was always culture going on. Yeah. That is not to say that I was going to it, but I found it reassuring to know it was going on very I closely. suppose so, but then I would picture myself going to said thing and be like, oh, there's going to be a fucking convoy of prams I'm going to have to try and get through, or it's going to be a pain in the hole to get to and from. It's going to take me an hour on the fucking tube. I can walk to most venues in Manchester from where I live. It's wow. pretty bloody handy. Um, so yes, I've been to a lot of great gigs this year. Um, and I'm anticipating going to a lot more great gigs. In fact, some of my gig highlights, Eamon, I went to see mm. Iron Maiden, a band oh, who I... didn't? Yes, I did. I had no familiarity, particularly with Iron Maiden before, but the opportunity came up to go. And it was, they put on a real show. That <laughs> Bruce Dickinson, he knows how to put on a show. And it was yeah. the biggest, I first of all... Um, the ratio of men to women. <laughs> yeah, yeah metal, like... metal is not is not good for the uh, for the, the battle of the sexes. But it really, was it? it was so lovely just looking <clears throat> down into the crowd and just seeing all the shirtless male bonding that was going on, like yeah, yeah. really high levels of emotion and just friendship and platonic love between men. It was really really beautiful and they just know their audience like the show was oh, yeah. fucking like two and a half hours long 
I swear to God. And they like brought out all these props. Your man Barry the skeleton or whatever his name is. What's, What's his Eddie, name? Eddie. Eddie Barry. <laughs> I don't think I don't think Iron Maiden would have made such a big mark on the metal scene if they had a, a mascot called Barry. That just doesn't. Well, maybe fly. Barry is his, Barry was the prototype. But yeah, Eddie was there. Um, I'm going to call him Barry from now on. <laughs> Me too. There was there was this moment where this like big robot came out, or maybe it was. And then, and like there was a gun, and like Bruce Dickinson oh was like shooting the robot with a gun. It was like, see, this is the thing. It's like you know, I, I I'm not really a metal guy. I like I like quite a lot of bits around metal, mm. um, but I mean, it, but it is ridiculous. Yeah. But if you can accept the ridiculous, it is good fun, isn't it? It was really it fun. fun. It was really good fun. Also, when I went to the bathroom, the girls' toilets were completely empty. That was a real oh, thrill. Nice. Never yeah. happens. And it was just, yeah, it was really just good, stupid fun. I loved it. Yeah. Um, that was really good. I saw Kurt Vile. That was adorable. Who else did I see? Um, I should have thought about this before I started talking about it. Oh, I, uh, I, I'll just give you one one side note because you'd say about that. That must have been nice about the bathroom mm. because like that that is often the worst thing of a gig. Because yes. also, I mean, you don't drink as much as I do, but I, I, I have I have a few pints, so I need to go. Do you know what I mean? Mm. I can remember going to see the specials at uh, Hammersmith. And he needed a fucking boat to get. Oh, <laughs> it, was, oh, it was so bad. Oh, that is right. So the idea of having a nice, pristine, no queue system. Oh, that sounds good. I mean, the men's toilets would have been an absolute um, uh, just yeah. quagmire because at Can this I venue. Play with madness. Yes, go to the <laughs> toilet. It's right there. Um, I think I think it was the AO. OA arena and they sell beer like you know how in some of these big stadium venues you can get like a giant bucket of beer so you don't have to keep uh, going it's like four pints in one or something so I imagine it was a sorry state of affairs in the bathroom oof, um, oof. but yeah, I had a good time um, mm. yeah that was fun and then I went yeah Kurt Vi was really good I went he's to he's lovely live isn't he so, really so lovely I mean the gig dude. was far too long again it was like two and a half hours like I don't I can't enjoy anything for that long is like, everything just even, going on too long nowadays it's like all films seem to be three hours well, you, yes I think so but you know what I think it is with gigs I think uh just the cost of everything has gone up and touring mm. is just so insanely expensive especially in the UK and I think that artists have to charge more for gigs and so they want to give people their money's worth and it's just too long it's like no leave me wanting more yeah, that's, yeah. No, two and a half hours is, is too much yeah, it that's, was, it's like Bruce Springsteen needs to play those four hour gigs I'm just thinking I, I know, have not got that much too time much. to like you, I, Bruce <laughs> there's nothing like I say I, I don't enjoy even like eating I can't enjoy doing it for that long. I have to move on to something else. You know, that's a good thing because I've been to a couple of those um, fancy, like, many courses, like 10 courses with pairs yes. of wines and all that sort of stuff. And they're really good fun for about six courses. And yeah. It's like, oh, Jesus, <laughs> I'm so total fat. fatigue. Can't, you know, I end up hungry really... by the end of them. I'm just like, Isn't I started eating. <laughs> yeah. I started eating a works. whole meal ago. Um, but yes, I don't like the tasting menu uh, approach mm, to, to gigs. Too much. Manchester Psych Fest was really good. I saw oh, Brian Jonestown Massacre. Saw Brian, nice. uh, Brian Eno. No, not Brian Eno. Brian what Eno. the fuck am I talking about? John 
Kale. I saw John Kale. Kale. That was really good. Um, And that was really fun. We went to Barcelona for Primavera Festival. Have you been to Primavera? I have not, but it looks lovely. It's so nice. It's so civilised. It's just, just big enough so that you don't get too lost. Everything's really walkable. The stage timings are really good. So like there were no particularly bad clashes. Some great artists on the bill. I saw La Tigra. I saw Moldy Peaches. I saw Boris. That was fucking wild. Now that's Um, my kind of metal. Yeah, that was Boris. That was moving. Um, Saw Blackhane. Do you know Blackhane? No, I don't know that. Uh, ju- like a really, makes really weird sort of electronic rap influenced, I guess, music. But it was in this underground car park and it was just so much dry ice you couldn't see two inches <laughs> in front of your face. It was incredibly intense. Um, and, you know, because it's Spain, you fucking eat your dinner at like 10 o'clock at night and then the headliners are on at like two o'clock in the morning. Um, so that was pretty. And then you just nap all day which suited me. Oh, no, that um, sounds great. It was I'm good. Nap yeah, anytime. the weather's nice. The people are all really good looking because they're Spanish. Some great mullets. Mm. Um, New Order were there. Blur were there. It was really good. I really enjoyed Primavera. Bristol is very good for festivals because like in the summer, every festival you know is basically crewed by people from Bristol. So Glastonbury <laughs> is so all Bristol people. <laughs> Shangri-La is all Bristol people. So true. All these different places, Love Saves the Day, loads of different festivals, they're all basically have some big, deep connection with Bristol. So it's like, a, I mean, I'm DJing all summer. It's like a ghost town. There's, there's nobody here. I go to work, it's like 28 days later, but in the Southwest. Um, but, you know, because there are loads of things going on you know Bristol people they know how to do a festival and they get into it and they had um, this festival called Forwards and I got free tickets because Bristol Radio were giving out loads of free tickets a neighbour of mine won the tickets and then she couldn't go so she gave me the ticket so there I was I went on my own on so solo festival day and that was really good what was happening there what was the vibe well so we had um, Gabrielle's uh, who were amazing and then they had... You mean uh, Gabriel's they, or do you mean Gabrielle? Well, I, you know, I had a two hour conversation with a woman uh, about whether it was Gabriel's or Gabrielle's. Is it Gabriel's? I <laughs> it's guess Gabriel's, it's Gabriel's, yeah. You're in the north. Do you know how I know that? Because I was to... hanging out with Jacob Lusk oh, or something. He's my pal. Gabriel's. Just don't ask him if he knows who I am. He's <laughs> <laughs> unlikely to be in the same room as me, don't worry. Uh, but yeah, them and uh, Left Field. and oh, fun. Um, uh, what's her name? Erica Badu. Whoa, this sounds is, amazing. Oh, the Erica Badu is incredible. She was an amazing twenty-five minutes late. That right? is good. That is good compared to. No, what I mean twenty-five minutes late after the band had started. Okay. So it wasn't like twenty-five minutes. Oh, she'll be on in a minute. It's like yeah. the band are on stage. They are playing. They played three songs and managed to make them last oh twenty-five my God. minutes. What the did first, she do? First what is like, she doing that always makes her late? I'd love to know. Well, you know this is a, I mean, this must be like, well, 50 grand gig to her. Do you know yeah. what I mean? She's come all the way from America to be in Bristol. What has she done 25 <laughs> minutes before she's on stage? Uh, oh, God, I've got nipped to the shops. I'm, 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 out, I'm out of batteries for the personal stereo. I've got to, you know, something must have come up. But anyway, so she didn't even arrive on stage. The, the band played a track. The band are amazing. It was great. Brilliant track. Everyone, yay. Bit of a quiet moment. Band start another track. Okay, good, 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 good. <laughs> and then trying to do this instrumental. That's a good instrumental. Very good. And then there's another awkward moment. And then it's like, oh, Jesus. Well, they've only got one more instrumental they can play. <laughs> so they start playing this track. And honestly, they jammed it for 20 minutes. It was 
it was endless oh, man. and we were all thinking what's Erica doing <laughs> what is, so, Erica's like trying to do a shoes up or something I don't know so, and eventually she came out after 25 minutes and you know was amazing it was brilliant mm. she was absolute showstopper but god what how do you get I mean I kind of had that before with Grace Jones but that's Grace Jones yeah you know, Grace Jones maybe it's one of those things where it's like you want to get people to the point where they're doubting that they're even going to see you and then you come out mm. and you blow their minds even more than you would do well, no. that was definitely the case because there were people contemplating leaving at once. <laughs> just like, she's not showing, is she? No, it's just over. But that was, so they did that. And it, they, of course, they turned the volume up for the, 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 the last act. So mm. she was really loud as well. The sound was really good, really enjoyed it. And then the next day, there was some, the odd little murmur of complaints on the social media network saying, oh, it's very loud. Oh. Very loud. Very loud music they had at that music festival. <laughs> yeah, that's kind of what music festivals are. But anyway, so I thought, well, if you enjoyed Erica Badu last night in that manner, then wait for Saturday because Aphex Twin headlined. <gasps> Deb, I'm not kidding. You know I like it mentally. Yeah, yeah. I do. have not heard anything even close to Aphex Twin in 20, 30 years. It was really? absolutely insane. It was like the sound of washing machines being thrown into canyons <laughs> with explosions. <laughs> sudden bursts of jungle techno and insane bass and then just electronic feedback and it was so relentless and there was not a sing you know he did not i mean at one point i remember just shouting all the hits <laughs> because because <laughs> there was nothing recognizable in the entire set not yeah, a yeah, single yeah, yeah. note had ever Fair been play. played by apex twin before what do the and neighbors was- think about that <laughs> I, I, this is I'm not even exaggerating I, I saw people running away from the stage <laughs> running a full pelt and one girl almost in tears just shouting what are they doing to me <laughs> like crying as she goes past <laughs> and the best thing was before they had um, Primal Scream on oh, so yeah. you had all your mod dads you know that, that go out twice a year and they're all like with the little sideburns being pulled down and you know it's all very very traditional, and even Leftfield, who were on the other stage before they started, you know, Leftfield were great, but they were exactly the same as they were in 1993 mm. or whatever. It was almost like Heritage Rave. It was like kind yeah. of, you know, could have been on Magic FM or something. It was really good. <laughs> not saying it was terrible, but it was, cold. it was just kind of by numbers. Do you know mm. what I mean? They just did a good show and fair play to that. But then the Aphix came on and just fucking terrorised the place. <laughs> it was so loud and it was so unmusical and you know the visuals were the most intense I've ever seen and he just started and played for an hour and a half or whatever none of it recognisable all of it off the scale fucking dark and weird points where you just thought I mean I just started laughing like properly laughing because if I didn't laugh I'd have cried because it was so bizarre and surreal you, it just happened to you you, don't, you weren't it was it's like he held like 20,000 people prisoner for an hour and tortured them. <laughs> it was fan-fucking-tastic. That I must be it. so fun just to be like, everyone's really excited to see me. I'm going to make a whole field of people feel physically sick. 
It was insane. And I just, all the time, I kept thinking about those those poor people who were complaining at Erica Badu the night before, <laughs> just going, what is going on now? <laughs> yeah, superb. So more of that at festivals, I think. More more risk-taking, more insanity, please. I want that, that spirit too. That really gave me a boost. It was yeah. like, uh, it gave me energy, do you know? I just thought, you can still do it. You can still shock and surprise people if you've got the balls to do it yeah i mean and he definitely had i mean it came to the end and there was no like good night let's do it let's do do a little (laughs) you know come back on a big round of applause and do the big hit no it's just insane (laughs) that was it gone and everyone like normally at the end of a a night there's like a big round of applause and it was like yeah yeah it was like it was like a second and a half of absolute dead silence. <laughs> like 20,000 people just going, what the fuck just happened? <laughs> that was insane. So yeah, more of that. If you get a chance, go and see Apex Twin. It's, I mean, uh, you've sold it to me. Mm, Might take mm. a Valium beforehand. <laughs> Might be too. <laughs> There have been many changes in the world of music over the last 45 years, but one thing remains constant, and that is the enduring love that fans have for the gothic archangels of Robert Smith and The Cure. Reminiscent of John Peel's description of The Fall, The Cure have always remained the same whilst always being different, from the spiky three-minute post-punk pop of three imaginary boys to the sumptuous gloom of disintegration and beyond, The Cure have become a truly iconic British band that quietly took over the world. Now Simon Price has finally created a book worthy of their glittering, if shadowy, career, with his gigantic and reverent tome, Curepedia, a painstaking collection of writings, pictures and ephemera that covers the A to Z of all things Robert Smith-led. We're so pleased to have Simon Price on the podcast today to tell us more about this incredible book and the inspirations behind it. Welcome to the pod, Simon. Hello, thank you for having me. Well, it's a great pleasure, and um, I have to say, as a, a... pretty much lifelong Cure fan. What an exciting book this is. Uh, Could you just tell us a little bit about um, the the preface of the book and and, and what you've set out to do with it? Well, I can't claim credit for the idea. Um, That came from the publishers. Um, They've been trying to find the right fit for me for a long time. Uh, I wrote a book about the Manic Street Preachers many years ago, um, but never really followed it up. And I, I sort of went, went back into journalism and, and uh, wrote a newspaper column for, for, about a, for about 12 years after that. And um, a guy called Lee Braxton, who was originally at Faber, now at White Rabbit, was always looking for the right project for me. And he just said, why don't we do a massive A to Z of The Cure? And I thought about it and I thought, is that a gimmick? Is that, you know, just a, a sort of daft way of approaching it? Or could it actually work? And... The more I thought about it, the more I thought it sort of freed me up a bit. It liberated me from having to follow a structure, follow a sort of timeline, Mm. you know, so I could write in a more thematic way and jump back and forth uh, between different eras. So, for example, there there are essays on the band's relation to religion and and sex and drugs and alcohol, all that stuff, and politics, and and even sort of more trivial matters like hair, makeup, football. (laughs) You you can't ignore the hair and makeup. No, exactly. Yeah, yeah. So, so yeah, that that's how it came about. It it took way longer than it should have done. It 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 took me 
three years it was you know exhaustive and exhausting to be mm. honest mm. uh but um yeah it, it was it's 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 a weighty tome it's uh the same kind of length as Middlemarch or Gravity's Rainbow or, or Ulysses or something. It's half the length of the Bible. I found out. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that is what more. we want to hear. I love it. Love yeah. it. <laughs> a, f- a few more jokes in there, but yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, I love the look of it. Uh, it's one of those things. Um, uh, it, it's it's not a, a, a cheap stick in your pocket paperback. This is this is like a this is a, like a treasure for for Cure fans, isn't it? This is a beautiful object. They've done a lovely job on the design. It's kind of um, textured matte red and black cover, and it's it's got a, a, a ribbon in it, so you don't lose your place. Hey. And uh, uh, it's it's got artwork at the front and back by um, Andy Vella, who is the Cure's own record sleeve designer for many years. So uh, yeah, it's it's a lovely looking thing, and I, I like to think that it's uh, it's got some pros in there that that matches up to that. Mm. Um, and yeah, it's it's just about just about small enough that you can carry it around and read it it's just short of being a coffee table book if you know what i mean <laughs> yeah. so yeah hopefully it's it's in a readable format well two things i always love in a book is either a map at the front because i like fantasy stuff and, uh, and huh. one, of, one of those little little bits of thread that you can keep your page so that sounds great oh, already oh, maybe i need a map for the second yeah. edition <laughs> yeah just let's have a map mainly sussex with crawley and hawley and stuff <laughs> yeah yeah well it's funny because I mean, you say it took you three years, and I'm really not surprised because, you know, it's they have been steadily banging out tunes for 45 years now, you know, and it, the, the although the lineups have, have swelled and shrunk, obviously Robert Smith has always been at the epicentre of it, but there's so much to tell, and in a way I can really understand why like an encyclopedia makes more sense because I think if you were going to tell this in a you know a chronological order you know taking in each of the albums and saying this that and the other about when this it it would it would drag on a little bit do you know what I mean but I think the idea of being able to look at different aspects of such a massive Mm. career is really quite appealing yeah, well, one thing I've said in the intro is that it turns out that writing a book about the cure means writing a book about everything, mm. because I just found myself disappearing down these research rabbit holes, you know, and, and um, they're, they're such a rich band in that respect that the more you kind of unpick the meaning of the lyrics, the more you find. So they're very much influenced by literature. So, you know, you, you end up um, putting in bits about Dylan Thomas and Mervyn Peake, Albert Camus, all that sort of stuff, Baudelaire. As you say, they have a very long career, so, so there's, there's a lot to cover just factually. Uh, I've, I've got an essay on every album, every single, every band member, and selected other songs as well. I found that they're one of those bands that really feed your brain. Mm. You know, it's not just background listening. Uh, it's it, it sort of almost opens up a whole box of knowledge. Uh, and a, a lot of my favourite bands like that, you know, Manic Street Preachers, The Smiths, Dexys Midnight Runners, they're like an education. Mm. Yeah, they're, they're, there's so many touchstones that they bring into your life mm. over the years. Um, I think one of the things that's really interesting about The Cure is the way they have managed to go through so many changes and yet always consistently have a recognisable style. Now, I mentioned in the intro, you know, that they started off with these spiky little pop songs and they've done very gloomy, sort of murky goth things like Faith, which is my favourite album. Yeah, oh uh, yeah. You know, uh, Head on the Door, which is, you know, pop music in a large part, but mixed up with really weird religious imagery. Mm. You know, all these different albums, even like big double albums like Kiss Me, Kiss Me, Kiss Me. I mean, yeah. th- these are such 
different bits of work. They go, they, they veer from like absolute gloom to total pop to throwaway bubblegum stuff and back again. But everything feels like the cure, doesn't it? Yeah, um, they haven't been afraid over the years to maybe shed a, a proportion of their fan base by by changing. You know, they mm. they, they will take that risk. And um, some of the albums you mentioned, Faith, Pornography is another very yeah. dark, intense yeah. album. You know, it, it literally starts with the words, it doesn't matter if we all die. <laughs> um, and then from, from the back of that, the band pretty much well disintegrated to, to use the word um because uh, they, they all fell out horribly and simon gallup left and there was just two of them lol tolhurst and robert smith their manager chris parry challenged them to write some pop songs mm. um just like a last roll of the dice and they did they wrote three of them let's go to bed which didn't chart um the walk which did and the love cats which made the top 10 yeah. and suddenly they're on top of the pops again and they're in smash hits magazine and that they're, they're reaching um you know an entire fan base that they never could have done before and and some people would criticize them for that say, oh they've sold out they've gone pop but i love the way that they've um since then managed to balance those two things mm. the albums you mentioned the head on the door kiss me kiss me kiss me have very much got got both things um the latter of those is is almost like a, a greatest hits album in itself in in that you know it's, it's a double and it's just got every aspect of of what they do but i can remember the the visceral joy of seeing them do something like the caterpillar on top of the pops yeah uh, you know and yeah, people do say that thing. Oh, Love Cats is a big song. I never really got that angle because I just thought, still sounds exactly like a Cure song. It's you know, it's boppy and it's exciting. But the thing about it is, is like, if you want to say, oh, they've sold out, listen to the rest of the album because it, it's not, yeah. it's not an easy, you know, it's not a, you know, a, a throwaway thing at all. It's, there's lots of very strange instrumentation and very curious subject matter, and they've always managed to to balance those things. Yeah, the Caterpillar from the top. The top is a crazy album. It's bonkers. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, this was the year, 1983, when he was recording that, where he was in three bands at the same time. He was in Susie and the Banshees, he was in The Cure, and he was in The Glove, which mm. was a side project with Steve Severin from The Banshees. Uh, and he was spinning all these plates and um, literally going by taxi from The Banshee studio in Twickenham to The Cure studio in Reading uh, to, to, to finish off those albums. And uh, to, to the extent it was damaging his health and, mm. and uh, the, you know, his, his GP said to him, just took one look at him and said, you've got to stop this or you're going to die. You know, mm. um, but um, and, and maybe the, the, the album that came out of it does show that it's the sense of somebody burning the candle at both ends and also melting the middle of the candle. You know, yeah. <laughs> one of the things I think is great about, uh, you know, having a big book like this is, is that The Cure have had such a strong aesthetic over the years. You know, that I used to work in computer games and I mm. can remember one day I was in the Sony offices and someone tapped me on the shoulder and said, oh, you, you like music, don't you? I was like, yeah, yeah. He said, you like The Cure? I said, I love The Cure. He said, well, look behind mm. you. And I looked behind me and there was Robert Smith. And, no. um, you know, there was no doubting. Like, it is exactly what <laughs> you imagine Robert Smith to look like. He he was that guy. You know, he, he there was no... He wasn't like, you know, he wasn't one of those ones that finishes his show and then changes into his suit and goes <laughs> home. You know, I mean, he lives that life. And he was, he was absolutely a caricature of what my brain thought Robert Smith should be like. Brilliant. And, and, and that aesthetic... 
has just held all the way, and even to now. I mean, he's in his what is he sixty now? Sixties, yeah. yeah, he's in his sixties. Yeah, um, I think he's almost um, a living experiment in what happens if you just don't stop mm. and don't give up. You know, he's just kept pretty much that that look and that that aesthetic the whole way through, and he's kind of inspired me to do the same. To be honest, <laughs> you know, I, I'm still wearing still wearing makeup after all these years. Oh, that's so cool. I mean, these are the sort of things that you know our, our podcast is very much about fans and and how fans relate mm. to the music, mm. and uh, these are the kind of geeky little details that we want, <laughs> yeah, it, you know? Yeah. So it's lovely to, to have them all, all put together like this. Mm. I think another interesting thing about The Cure is that they, um, they not only did they have a pop success, but slowly they crept across the world. Now, they are, you know, a worldwide phenomenon now, and they're one of the very few English bands that, I wouldn't say, they didn't break America in the classic we've had five number ones or anything, but they're so huge in areas yeah. like America, all around Europe, all you know, basically all around the world. But it happened in such a weirdly organic way and it's kind of it's absolutely Teflon now, you know, nothing can nothing can knock it down, nothing can stick to it. They they have built their own empire, haven't they? Yeah, you're absolutely right. If you look at um the stats for their biggest ever gigs, um two of the three largest audiences they play to as headliners are in Mexico. Mm. Um, so they're huge in in uh, the Latin, uh, you know, Spanish-speaking world, mm-hmm. um, and I, I think the reason for that is that they've never written uh, in sort of geo-specific terms. They don't write about London landmarks and stuff like that. They write about emotions that people all around the world can identify with, mm. you know, loneliness and feeling like an outsider and and all, all that kind of stuff that uh, some people can write off as being. I don't know, teenage angst or, or sort of suburban despair. But I, I think th- those things are pretty much u- universal. And that's that's why they've, they've transcended um, eras, generations, national boundaries, all of that. It is such a precious thing and it looks so wonderful. And it, I know it's going to be okay. so deeply layered with, uh, you know, little, little nuggets of information. And also it seems like you've really gone for the philosophy behind the band and all that sort of stuff, mm. which is super important for fans. You know, that this is kind of what, when we sit there and listen to the music, we daydream about what these things mean. And it, it having a, a tone like this, I think will really be a wonderful thing for every fan. So I really look forward to looking at it more closely. Thanks so much for talking to us today. I think this book is going to be a real treasured possession for everyone who gets hold of one thank you for having me cheers what we're gonna what we're gonna what we're gonna do right here is go back way back back into time that's right name that tune name that tune Our guest today is trailblazing DJ, presenter and author who has carved herself a position of love and respect in the music industry that climaxed with a Lifetime Achievement Award from DJ Magazine. Ever since she found her way into the DJ booth, she has honed her style, listening, learning and leading. DJ Paulette started her career in this home city of Manchester, playing some of the most influential clubs in the history of house. She played the infamous Flesh Night at the Hacienda and began to create ripples that became waves that she surfed out to London, Brighton, Paris, Ibiza and the world. Her new book, Welcome to the Club, is a frank and funny look at club culture and the myth of the glamorous DJ lifestyle. 
Today we are delighted to welcome Paulette to share her memories about the music she loved and the memories she's made along the way. Welcome to What Goes Around. Oh, hello. That's a lovely introduction. I'm just grinning from ear to ear. Well, I, I, I really enjoyed, uh, I've been reading the book the last few days, and I've really enjoyed the, the kind of, um, oh, in, the, in our modern age now, DJing is like a cynical choice of yes everything's kind of like numbers and profiles and all that kind of stuff algorithms what I love about your story is like you kind of accidentally walked into the DJ booth yeah totally (laughs) and then suddenly you're you're playing at the Hacienda but not just the Hacienda because I think it kind of does a bit of a disservice. There's a few things about Manchester culture that I think people don't get unless they've been to Manchester. One of which is like this Hacienda kind of has a a, a block sort of, this is what it is. And actually yes. those sort of really early days with the live bands and stuff and Madonna doing PAs and stuff. And then the, the whole Acid House thing coming on. That is kind of what people think of. But there's a whole history that comes on after that. And I think, from everything I've read about it, the, the club that took you on board, Flesh, that was the club that saved the Hacienda. Because yes. it was turning into a, 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 you know, I'm not talking Coolio, but a gangster's paradise. It was, it was yeah. rough, you know? And there was violence all around it because suddenly there was so much money from all the drugs that were going on around that scene. But Flesh, you turned it on its head by putting on this... We say gay night, but as 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 I read in your book, it was a night for gays, uh, lesbians, and their friends. Yes, it was a monthly Wednesday night. Yeah, it was a midweek, so it was something. First of all, that clubs weren't really focusing on, Mm. you know, or would even think they could fully market to that many people Mm. in Manchester on a midweek. I mean, Hacienda held, you know one and a half thousand to possibly illegally just under two thousand <laughs> yeah, people. Sure, I've been there and that's where it's more than um, one and a half thousand. And to fill that, I mean, y- you have to attract quite a lot of people from quite a lot of corners of the, not just the city, but corners of the, the, whole country. the country, really. They changed or switched on its head even the gay culture of clubbing, mm. which had been very segregated up until that point. So the guys went where the guys went, and the lesbians went where the lesbians went, and you didn't really get the two factors mixing. Mm. And very much up until Flesh, the big gay nights had been pretty much all male. Mm. And then you had the lesbian nights on the other side, which, you know, generally weren't attracting that many people until first of all Lucy Sher did the lesbian summer of love and it attracted over a thousand Mm. lesbians and they then realized that actually yes we do have a market for doing a club night like this putting the gays and lesbians together in the hacienda which in its first nine years of operation had not had a gay night it wasn't Mm particularly or especially gay friendly to put it in the biggest club in Manchester the biggest straight club in Manchester because also bear in mind when they started Flesh it was coming off the back of Section 28 Mm -hmm. um, 
all of the negative gay press post-AIDS or, or, you know, it was around the time of the AIDS crisis. So anything gay, it was dirty, you could catch it. Mm. We were fags, we were puffs, we were queers. You know, it was, it, it, it wasn't, gay clubbing wasn't the cool thing that we have in 23. We kind of did what we did so in 2023, we could have what we have now. Yeah, and it really Where, did, it saved that whole, I mean, it pretty much saved the club because it that was the one Well, it made thing. money for a start. It, it made money, and also, <laughs> it, it, it brought back a bit of love and a bit of peace, do you know what I mean? It, it, it changed, love, peace, changed the unity. feeling of that club because it was beginning to get this dire reputation. And yeah, it gave it glamour. Yeah, it yeah, made yeah, yeah. it. It also put Manchester on the map in a different way, because up until they did Flesh, Manchester clubbing or Manchester just in general had a really negative um, association with people, mm. and I think we are still, even in twenty twenty three, suffering the backdraft of gangs and guns and you know every paper every time they want to run a story on manchester yeah. it's always gangs and guns gangs and guns because we can't shake that post you know end of the 80s into the 90s mm. horror stories but what flesh did and the phrases were very much coined in manchester it became gay chester <laughs> It's queer up north. And it, you know, that was the banner headline for Flesh when it started was it's queer up north. Yeah. And it made it acceptable and cool and desirable to be in Manchester and to be gay in Manchester. Mm. So it attracted people from all over the country because there was a safe space for people to come and party and be who they are mm. as gay as they wanted to be because you could not be that gay outside of those four walls. Yeah, it's true. And you look at the, the reverberations of that as well, you know, because nowadays you've got Canal Street... Or anal tree, as the sign used to say. <laughs> <laughs> On bourbon. I loved that. Yeah. But, you know, that is, that is a thriving, out and proud whole section of the city, which, I mean, I, I, I'm not gay, but I used, to, I used to go drinking down there because it was the nicest place in Manchester to be. Do you know what I mean? And, yeah. And yeah. there was a, there's an openness and, a, and a, a, a real friendliness around that whole scene that kind of... Like I say, I think it, it changed the perceptions a little bit. and it, I think it's to do with inclusion. Mm. It, it's to do with that, first of all, pride in who you are mm. and also acceptance of everybody for who they are, no matter how they wanted to be. You know, if you're cool with us, we're cool with you. Mm. And we hadn't had that acceptance from anybody else but we created that you know they there was the creation of that environment that made it you know it kind of attracted people like a magnet mm. to that 
area you know you say canal street but really it was mantos really mm. that kicked it off in 91 on canal street because they took the gay out of the basements out of the dark tinty pubs yeah. and put it in a glass fronted because yes, it had yeah, been illegal yeah, they yeah, put it in a glass fronted building with cables outside mm, yeah. they broke every single code and every single law <laughs> <laughs> they did because same sex was only allowed at 21 yeah and you yeah. could go in a bar and a club at 18 so flesh and and mantos and then paradise factory made being young and gay okay yeah yeah and you found your way in there uh, but it seems to me like um as i started saying at the at the top of the show you know nowadays it's a very cynical thing but you kind of found yourself drawn to the music really and it feels like reading the book that everything just rippled out from flesh do you know what i mean like your, yeah, your love in, and, and enthusiasm for the music carried you well in right terms through. of djing it came from flesh but i've always been in music i have always for you know pretty much since i was born i've been put on the stage by my mum singing mm. and dancing in shows in the West Indian Centre with my sisters. You know, so all of my family are and have been musically oriented in record buyers and I've been clubbing since I've been 15. So, um, you know, I've pretty much done every club in Manchester. <laughs> <laughs> that I, I could, I've danced on every dance floor in Manchester that I could possibly dance on. Um, so the music was there in me and Flesh helped bring the DJ side of me out. So when you say the music was in you, let's let's talk about um, some of your phonographic memories. And uh, yeah. I know, I'm sorry, this is just lovely for me because I'm a massive David Bowie obsessive. Yes, <laughs> and, uh, and so am I. The first, and have been the, since I was seven years old. Same as that, same as that. My, my elder sister had a, a copy of Hunky Dory and yeah. I, I just listened to it all day, every day. I actually got thrown out of... Um, my class at school for constantly singing David Bowie songs and eventually well I'm not surprised because <laughs> lyrically they're a bit challenging for seven year olds I know but I, I wasn't too aware but I was certainly into it well eventually they sat me next to this nice girl called Claire Davis who said she didn't mind me singing so I just sang Aww. next to her for about three years quite sweet actually when David Bowie died I hadn't seen her in 25 years and she just sent me a message through Facebook saying you're right I thought oh oh isn't that lovely but let's talk about changes by David Bowie and and the album and uh, you know how you came across that and what that means to you yeah well Hunky Dory was an album that was owned by both two of my sisters Alicia and Jenny had copies of this album I think I inherited Jenny's copy or I say I inherited it I'm not sure she knows I've got it <laughs> to be honest yeah, no, I'm know. sure she does I'm sure she does <laughs> but that's what people do with records you find them and you keep them <laughs> 
I am a magpie. I, I, I you know, I hold I, my hands up. Yeah, I sometimes describe my record collection as like the 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 Borg. Do you know what I mean? Like in Star Trek, yeah. where you just absorb. <laughs> yeah, 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 totally. Anyone's got it's spare like, vinyl? I'm like. <laughs> I'm like a magnet with iron filings. It Brilliant. all just kind of attaches to me. And, and uh, yeah, so Jenny and Elysia both had a copy of this album and I played it on repeat, on repeat. I know that, that all David Al- Bowie albums anyway, I kind of know from mm. start to end and I can pick them up in the middle or, or anywhere and I can sing the segues or the mm. you know the links and everything i know all of it but this particular track um just mesmerized me because it's in the silence and the spaces mm. and then the notes mm. and from the first chord that you hear on the piano key, it just lit- I can feel all the baby hairs on the back of my yeah, neck yeah. just standing to attention. There is just such a sense of peace and beauty. And then when the lyrics tell the story, mm-hmm. it just opened up a whole other world and it just spoke to me in a way that You know, when songs speak to you in that way, you know they're going to be stuck with you for life. And that is changes for me. Still don't know what I was waiting for And my time was running wild A million dead-end streets and Every time I thought I got it made It seemed the taste was not so sweet So I turned myself to face me But I've never caught a glimpse Of how the others must see the faker I'm much too fast to take that test Ch-ch-ch-ch-change because we both had the same experience of, of discovering it really quite young. Yeah. But it is an album about growing up to a large extent. You know, I mean, there's a there's a lot of it where they, you know, the, the, the things it talks about, even tracks like Kooks, where it's, you know, all about going to school. Not oh, going I school love that yeah. song. There's so much joy and there's so many layers. But even though I was too young to understand some of it, there was enough of it to get me on that on-ramp. And then as I became a teenager and, you know, we all changed it. And also, let's not forget the... The, the visual image of David Bowie and, and all of the things that went yeah. with that. Yeah. All of that stayed with me right through teens. And, I, and I'm, sh- I'm sure looking at how, you know, I've been looking at videos of you uh, online and stuff from various sets from, from time immemorial. Oh, everything. Everything needs to do with the mind. I a little bit of glam in you. <laughs> oh, just a little. Just a little. Um, you know, it's funny. I think of the way I dress now and the way I dressed when I was I was starting to club and it has been so much influenced by two people well three David Bowie Brian Ferry and Grace Jones mm. not a and bad trio 
they, for style, for me, were just the trifecta of, <laughs> of cool because it was, they just really played with, um, you know, androgyny. Mm. And I've always felt very much in the middle of everything. Um, very much in the middle of black and white, very much in the middle of gay and straight, very much in the middle of pretty much of, of, of rock and roll and mm. soul, very much in the middle of disco and, and electronic. I've always felt very much in the middle and, and, and absorbing all these influences. Mm. And the makeup, the drama, the performance, and getting all of that to work so beautifully and, and to feel just totally organic and natural, you know, authentic. You know, this is who they were. They weren't pretending to be, you know, they, they weren't, you know, just putting on a, an outfit because it was weird. Mm. They were putting on an outfit because it was them. Mm. Yeah. They were putting on the baggy pants or the sharp suit or the flat top hair or the red head with a circle on the forehead or the baggy pants with a big white shirt and long hair or long hair and a dress. Yeah, yeah. Because that was hunky dory anyway, yeah, totally. you know, that it's long hair and a dress. And it was a guy, it was obviously a guy. But but why not? You know, because it suited him. He looked absolutely perfect <laughs> yeah. lying on that sofa in a dress. Absolutely. I'm not sure there's ever a bad photo of David Bowie, but there we go. <laughs> Capricorn. Capricorn. You know, Capricorn as well. I have to take that too. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know what you want. You know how to get it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and I know how I want to look, mm. you know. And, I, and also being able to be all of those things. So you can be casual, mm. but you can be sharp. Yes, and yeah. you can be dark and you can be theatrical and you can be all of those things and it's okay to be all of those things mm -hmm. and I think you know from where you started uh, at Flesh and stuff that obviously that all came through but you kind of um, you had a very there's, there's like a sweeping arc of your career it seems to me that one thing kind of led to another but you <laughs> you kind of you managed to reach out to people beyond I mean it would have been very easy to do your little spot there and then you know and be happy with be it happy with that. But, <laughs> but, but you kept yeah, going no. and kept reaching and I think you know Bowie's one of those artists and, and Grace Jones as well that, that are very much um, always aspirational and looking for the next thing have you always been you know in music and in, in life in general are you always looking for something new coming do you up? know there's a funny thing like when I was younger in the olden days, mm. <laughs> when I was growing up, say probably seven, eight, I've always known two things about myself. Mm. One, that I was going to perform on a stage in front of thousands of people. And two, that I was going to write a book. Mm. There are key presents in my childhood growing up one of them my dad bought me and my twin a petite typewriter mm -hmm. my twin wasn't bothered with it she couldn't have cared less she just totally you know she was interested but she wasn't yeah. as interested as i was because when we got the typewriter 
I made myself the editor of a magazine. I created a magazine called Clarissa Talk and I made it every week and forced my family to read it. Fantastic. And then, <laughs> and the other present was, you know, my mum always, you know, we were bought records and I saved my spends to buy records. And music and performing, I was taught to play the violin, the piano, you know, performing was like, I wanted to do it, but I didn't know how I was going to get there. And I think what happened was I tried, you know, singing in bands, recording in studios, and I kind of got a little tickle, but I hadn't quite found my how. Yeah. And then when I started DJing and people started booking me in other places, not just in their hacienda, you know, I, I was in Leeds, I was in Nottingham, I was in Glasgow. I, I, I started to get bookings in Brighton, London, all, all over the country. And then I realised like, hey, actually, you know, <laughs> this is the thing. Mm. It's your calling. It's and it get uh, and I realised that I could actually do this, mm -hmm. and I could do more than this because it had opened the door. DJing very definitely opened the door to me doing so many other things. Yeah, I mean, this is the thing as well. It's like you are known primarily as as the DJ, but you've done a lot more in the industry, and, and you've had some loads. some really. <laughs> <laughs> we, yes, you know you say that with a heavy sigh but <laughs> no no not a heavy sigh but I mean it, it's a weird thing yeah. that I could have done so much and then you know lots of people not really be aware of it mm. but I think because I've moved around a lot um it kind of breaks the continuum yeah <laughs> so so people in London know what I've done in London and they haven't connected that I existed before I got there yeah. and that there was a story before I got there. People in Manchester know the story in Manchester up until I moved to London and then it's like there's been a break. Mm. So they've only kind of got to know what happened in that break when I got back in 2015. Mm. So there, there was like a 21 year gap. And, and then people, France in the middle, you know, that was a big Yeah, exactly. Life, there it? was France and Spain and people are still not connecting and, 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 you know, can still not connect what happened for me in France because they don't speak French. Mm. They don't understand the culture. They don't understand the clubs. And, the, and there's been like, you know, what happened for me in France was probably bigger than anything I've ever done in my entire life. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and people have no idea of what that was. Mm. And but also you've done, you know, there's a, a still primarily, uh, there is DJ stuff at the top, but I'm really interested in all the other things you do, because you, you, you did TV presenting, yeah. you did um, PR, you did some amazing PR and A&R for Zoom yeah. records and all that sort of stuff, finding yeah. really great acts and pushing them on. Yeah. You did the PR for Ronnie Size Represent. I mean, that was a total game changer for, for that whole scene, do you know what I mean? Yeah. Just to get 
not only that album out in front of so many people, but also then it ends up winning yeah, the Mercury Bear Prize. in mind, I mean, I'd never done PR in my entire I, life. I didn't even have a clue what it was. Wow. I didn't even know any PRs. I didn't know what I was supposed to do when I got the job. I got the job because I interviewed well for it and really wanted to do it. Yeah. But I did not know how to do that job when I got the job. Girl, you killed I learned. <laughs> I totally learned as quick as I could what I needed to do. And I, did, I didn't even ask anybody for help. You know, this is just the mad thing. I didn't ask anybody. Nobody told me how to do it. But I just kind of figured it out. I'm always that kind of person that figures it out. I like to be... You know, even though I don't enjoy being pushed out of my comfort zone, I do enjoy being pushed mm. out of my comfort zone because I really like a challenge. Same with writing the book. I yeah. really like a challenge. So I've done a lot of things that I've not known how to do and I've learned how to do really quickly. And then not only have I learned how to do it, I've been really good at it. Yeah. Well, this is the, the difference, I think, is what you, you said there is like... Um, I don't think reading the book, I don't think you were pushed into many things at all. I think you pulled yourself towards things that you you thought were bright and shiny and you wanted. And you, you, went, <laughs> you went and got that shit. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, did. I, I think because I'm just dead nosy. I'm really, really nosy. And I, and, and from being very small, I've always taken things apart and wanted to to know how mm. they work and then put them back together again and said look fixed it i'm really really good at putting lots of disparate pieces together mm. and making big things that work really well out of them yeah and and i like i love people I love connecting people mm -hmm. and I love connecting with people. You know, I come from a big family. I think that's part of it is that yeah. I really like having families around me. I like creating families. I like, um, and I love spotting talent. And it's something also that I've done from being very small was if I heard a record on the radio I would say to my sisters or, you know, even when I was working, I remember when I was working in advertising and we used to have this thing where I'd go, that's going to be a hit. And we put money on it. And I was just winning yeah. all the time because I could spot hits, 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 hits every time and one of the records was Lisa Stansfield's Around the World and that was it the first time, <laughs> the first time I heard it I was like that's going to be a hit it's going to be number one for ages and people laughed at me in the office mm. I took so much money home on that track because no, <laughs> every day when they played it it was just like ching yeah 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 uh, she's one of my, my, my podcast wish lists I have to say because I just oh, I love she's the incredible way that not only was she hugely successful, but people just don't know how big that was in America. That was, you know. It they, was enormous. They loved that record. They absolutely yeah. loved that record. And it was at a time when that wasn't happening for a lot of people, you know. Yeah. And also, you know, a woman. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was, it was just like this big, you know, 
female fronted outfit you know it was lisa it was about lisa stansfield it wasn't you know it was her voice her song singer songwriter performer you know mm. everything in the one package you know and i think you know sometimes i think maybe not enough is made of her yeah, contribution I, I to agree. music definitely agree um so when you talk about, you know, going out and grabbing things and making things happen for yourself, I think we should talk about this next track, Donna Giles, and I'm telling you, I'm not going. <laughs> this is, you know, this I'm is like... so mad with myself because I wrote a discography for the back of the book uh-huh. and I forgot to put it in. Oh, well, and here's your chance it's to correct in, it. It's in the story. It's This track is in the story mm. now. The story is... Donna Giles, and I'm telling you I'm not going. It's a track from Dream Girls. It's a song from Dream Girls. Mm-hmm. And it's ordinarily a um slow, soulful, show stopping R and B tune. But XL signed it and had Donna Giles revocal it and had Stonebridge. He was the remixer of the moment, um, I think probably around 92, 93, 94. And he did a series of remixes of which the Poppers, I think it was Stonebridge, Poppers, Delight remix, Mm. just became the most enormous anthem anthem in clubs in Manchester anyway but definitely in gay clubs and I hammered it Mm. I absolutely hammered it but there is one particular story there was one particular time when I hammered it where it was the night that I had it was the first night that I was DJing after I'd done my finals Mm. and I was DJing at the Saturday night club that Paul Cons and Lucy Cher had at home in Juicy Street and we'd misbehaved a bit and we'd really misbehaved a bit (laughs) and I was not in the best state let's say Mm -hmm. I don't know how much I can say about this but I was not in the best state it's all in the book love it's too late to say say this there's a whole chapter (laughs) okay yes so I don't you know I don't know uh, you know, I'd take an ecstasy, right? Let's let's just put it out there. It was the nineties, hun. No one cares. It was the nineties. <laughs> yeah, it was the nineties, and I just, you know, I'd just graduated, so mm, it was just like, not? you know, why not? But I was working, I was DJing, and I'd taken this pill, which, you know, it was my mistake. It was a bold move mm. because I am really bad with drugs i have no resistance to Mm. anything like that not even pharmaceutical drugs you know i don't really take headache tablets or anything like that because they're just a lot of them are just too strong for me Mm. so why i took an entire pill (laughs) 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 who can say (laughs) and as i played this donna giles record i'd been struggling up until the point of playing this Donna Giles record Mm. and then I played it and I came up on the pill and I was just like I need to dance 
I need to dance. I need to dance not this side of the decks. I need to dance on that side of the decks with all my friends who were different shades of lost it, never going to find it. (laughs) And we were dancing and I was just soaring. I love this record. The lyrics are fantastic. It tells the story of my life for the last 30 years. And I'm telling you, I'm not going. (laughs) I am not going anywhere, mate. (laughs) Only that the record finished and I'm still dancing with my friends. I'm like, where's the DJ? Oh, yeah, 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 that's me. me. (laughs) (laughs) So then I go back round and then I'm trying to DJ, DJ, DJ. But now I've really come up on the pill because I've been dancing and enjoying the party with my friends. And everything just goes on a... (laughs) <laughs> the store it's hits. all in the book <laughs> it's all in the book moments that every single person who has read this book so far has said that moment is a key moment in the book and I forgot to put it on the discography Ah. I can't believe I've done it I've just been like checking and checking and going back to the proof and the print ready pdf and looking and going I've really not put it on. Uh, so there's always something. There's always something. You have the memories forever. That's the thing. That's the thing. Yeah. Well, it, I mean, it's in the book anyway. So yeah, yeah. it's listed, but it's not in the discography, which means it's not on the playlist that I created uh, either. So, you know, it's a miss. Well, it's a miss. There's a certain amount of irony at being called the Popper's Delight Mix as well. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, exactly. Because we know, we know, we know what was happening when that rec- record yeah. was on. And it was just such a moment. Yeah. And even now, you know, as many times, I still play this record now. And I remember um, a couple of years ago, I couldn't find my vinyl mm. and I wanted to play it on um, Mary Ann Hobbs mix and I sent an email I sent a message through LinkedIn to Stonebridge just saying look uh, I know it's a bit of a weird one but can you send me a high res sound file and he did it oh nice he sent me the whole thing on WAV and about a month later the track got re-licensed no there you go you see making things happen I like it. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, and people started playing it again. Yeah. It was just like, I'm not saying that was all down to me at all. But, you know. You did your bit. You did your bit. I did my bit. I tell you what as well, listening to that record, because um, I, I didn't really know it before. You know, I guess at that time I was probably a bit more no vocals and heads down techno. But um, 
What a vocal performance by Donna Giles. Yeah. That is, yeah. she is yeah. eating the microphone. Absolutely. Absolutely eats that big time. And I love vocals like that. And I think that's one of the things that has made it sometimes a bit difficult for me in t in terms of being a house music DJ, DJ anyway, is that I love vocals. I love mm. sing-alongs. I like songs that allow us to connect with ourselves yeah. in in a way where our story we can hear our story in the lyrics we can feel our story in the melodies and the bass lines and the beats are pulling us into some kind of uplifting communion on the dance floor those are the tracks that I like, but they, you know, there there have been moments where vocals have not been cool. Well, certainly, you know, I, when I was uh, doing my little raving periods in the early nineties, you know, uh, vocals were very much a northern thing. Uh, yeah, uh, where, exactly. Where we were down south in Oxford and Oxfordshire and all that kind of thing, we there weren't very many vocals. But then the difference when you went up the motorway was night and day. You know, I've got friends who like grew up in Liverpool and. The oh, stuff God, they yeah. were listening to at the quad and the stuff going on at the Hacienda, it, it was much more kind of uplifting, really. And yeah, much the more, more songs, song, the better. More yeah. song-orientated, yeah. Yeah, totally. So you can imagine what a, a, a contrast it was for me when, in 1994, I decided to move to London. Mm. You know, I, I uh, very much at a peak in my career in terms of Manchester. And then I've moved to London because I've got a residency every Saturday night at the Zap Club and I'm playing at Heaven and I'm playing all over the place. It's like, yeah, it makes more sense to move because there weren't any high-speed trains and it yeah. was just a nightmare. Just, with, with bags of records in those days. Yeah, have, getting from Manchester. Stick, was it? <laughs> yeah, getting from Manchester to Brighton wasn't easy in 1994. It wasn't straightforward at all. So, you know, it made sense to me to move. But then musically... Very different, yeah. It was very, very different. And I found it hard to get my foot in you know and and to really find my rhythm in terms of clubbing because i was playing vocals mm. it wasn't the style you know it was very sort of club dubby mm. um but then i found the places and i you know i i did what i always do i build it you find one place where you can play and you start to play there a lot and then you start to play other places yeah. and you kind of start clubbing and you discover new corners and new people and you meet new people and you connect and then you know it takes a, all takes a while but then you find the places where you can play yeah make it happen it's interesting as well like the, 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 i mean the story of i mean it's it, it's lovely and humble actually to, that you can say tell the story about you know like Losing his shit on the pill and then trying to find your way back to the DJ. And there's a, I, have I didn't to say, really. I had you, to go home. You, you, <laughs> <laughs> Brilliant. Well, I, I noticed there's a bit of a running thread in that because two or three times you left the decks to have a dance and then got chucked out by bouncers thinking you yeah, were the DJ. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> hilarious though that was hilarious I'm that the DJ no you're oh, not God. wait till the music ends then, oh, <laughs> then you're gonna so know oh that was so funny so funny that was 
so funny and it happened three years on the trot in Montreal and I'm playing <laughs> this enormous party, the Black and Blue Festival and the security tried to bum rush me off that's my own outrageous, stage. Outrageous, outrageous. But I love that because there's a certain amount of um, like honesty and humility to be able to get. Some, some DJs are going to glance over that and they're not, they don't want to talk about those, those moments. But what I like Nobody about the does. book... Nobody does. Well, your, Nobody does. Your book though is very interesting because... Not only do you, are you happy to talk about that and have a laugh about it, but also you, you, you talk a little bit about, you know, the work of DJing, which isn't like moving bricks from one place to another. But once you've had to stay in your millionth rather run down, you know, mm. bed and breakfast or you're traveling and you spent seven hours in the latest airport. I mean, mm. all of that traveling and uh, and just rough sleeping essentially in, in various yeah. states that takes a big toll on you and also the, yeah, the, the whole does. lifestyle being upside down all the time you know and sleep becomes like a real holy grail you know absolutely that and the older you get and the longer you do it it yeah. really does you know so when people ask why I don't drink and I don't take drugs anymore this is why you know because yeah. if you want to keep doing it if you want to keep doing it I just don't like hangovers. Yeah. <laughs> and the older you get, bouncing back from a hangover is not the bounce. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you don't bounce. You just want to die for three days. And I'm too busy to lose three days to a hangover. You know, and I am not as busy as like... You know, I don't know how the other guys do it who, who are much bigger than me. I don't know how... You know, maybe, you know, Amelie Lenz is pregnant. I, I don't know how she's coping with her pregnancy at the same time as having the most enormous DJing schedule. Mm. I don't know how, you know, David Getter is handling his 256 dates a year or, you know, how do people do it? But mm. for me, in order for me to continue doing the the tenth of what they're doing, I've had to reassess how I am in a club, how I party, how long I spend there, how I get there, you know. Yeah, yeah. It's just, it really does, it really does take it out of you. And it, I think there is a reason why, you know, mental health is a big deal for a lot of DJs because Definitely. You're on the front line every day. When you get into a club, you are, I mean, there's a stress. I mean, it, it, it is an excitement and the adrenaline is off the scale mm. for 60 minutes to two hours or, you know, even four hours if you're playing a longer set and crazy people that do seven and nine hour sets <laughs> i mean that's half a day yeah. <laughs> you know when you it's you a full day in it. the office I mean, it's I, a full I, day in the office i regularly do six hour sets and that, you know that's that's a that's a long time to be standing it's a up long, never mind anything else yeah <laughs> to be st one standing up to be one two thinking in fours mm. ones no not ones fours eight sixteen you're counting for the entire time mm. if you beat matching you're definitely counting yeah. for the entire time 
and at the same time you're doing this weird quadratic equation in your head if not that then this yes yeah yeah how is that going to affect the next how's that going to affect and then you've got the outside external influences of tour manager tugging his shoulder sound guy tugging his shoulder Mm. really loud monitors cannon confetti (laughs) punters taking pictures punters showing you signs your shit pump it up you know that like you were on the front line for receiving everything all sorts of messages when you're trying to focus on um you know, creating a really beautiful sonic environment for everybody to enjoy. And there's no wonder, you know, it it is a high pressure, high alert way of earning a living. And it's not, you know, I'm not complaining because I really, you know... Yeah, it comes through... We get off on it to a degree because, you know, if... (laughs) You know, because we like it. We do it because we love it. Mm. And I love playing music and I love sharing music with people. But there's a point where I've had to think, how can I do it where it's not going to push me too much into the red? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a it, it's a delicate balance. And, you know, we've seen various DJs like Avisi and that sort of thing, you know, Having yeah. proper breakdowns. I mean, totally. I had to take a couple of years off playing just because I think there's all that expectation and the work itself and the lack of sleep and all. Of, and if you have yeah. that lifestyle as well, it, you know, with the best way in the world, it's going to it's going to grind everyone down. Do you know, I tell you what, the two three worst things for me. Sleep deprivation. Hunger and bad tech. <laughs> bad tech, yeah. Yeah, that's the worst. If I don't get the tech that I've put on my rider, and if the tech that they give me is, you know, not working, Mm. wow, what that does for my state of mind is not cool. Brings on that panic, doesn't it, inside you, where you're thinking, oh, how am I going to make this work? It's just trying to control... um, a reaction that you don't want other people to see. Yeah, yeah. That, you know, when you're in front of people, you can't be in that state yeah. where something's not working and you need to correct something. It sort of Everything snowballs for you, be... doesn't it? Because you, yeah. you, you get self-conscious and then you realise everyone's staring at you and waiting for the next thing and then you're thinking... Well, you can't and maybe they're even not, but it just feels, feels like way, yeah. they are. Yeah. It feels like they are. You know, chances are people won't realise anything that's going on. You know, I had a situation at a festival this year where, um, you know, I have on my rider that I don't have anybody behind me while I'm playing. I don't enjoy it. It's a distraction. Yeah. And people don't really realise when they're getting drunk that they're getting drunk and standing in front of you while you're supposed to be performing. So I, I have it that there should be nobody behind me. And um, at one festival, someone came into the booth. Two people came into the booth. One of them asked me to play um, a drum and bass track. 
which is just like, <laughs> mate, have you been who here for the you? last few hours? <laughs> How did you get in here? And have you been listening to anything I've played? It's like, so I'm physically pushing this guy out mm. of the booth. No security, nobody anywhere. And then the next thing, a woman came up who was on mushrooms, who was arguing with me in whatever was happening in her head. I don't know where she was, but she wasn't at this festival and I wasn't who she thought I was. But, you know, she's having a bargy with me while I'm trying to DJ. And it was just like, people don't know that you have to deal with that. And people don't realise when they're acting like that, what it's doing while you're trying to concentrate. And you're having to kind of put a natural reaction, which is to push someone away because social media is such that, you know, and people have done it, you know, like, I can't remember who the male DJ was that kind of pushed a girl from standing on the speaker and the speaker fell. Mm. And then he was the... The bad guy, yeah. Bad guy not the person that had stumbled into the DJ booth and shouldn't actually have been there. And that, you're kind of always fighting this, what people see and what people think they see and you can't have anything recorded and you can't have pictures taken of you having a bit of an argument yeah. with people. And it, the pressure of presenting something that is just like, everything's fine. When two of your CDJs aren't working, you've got a weird randomer here that's asking you for (laughs) drum and bass. (laughs) This is the thing, those people that end up coming into the booth and and demanding all sorts of things, do they do that in other walks of life? Do they go up to the bus driver and say, could you you take the other route? I'd prefer to go down that route. Just let me do my job, mate. (laughs) Exactly. You know, or failing that, just give me your work address so that I can (laughs) come come in in, on Monday around half past 11 (laughs) and scribble all over what you've been doing. Because basically what you're doing when you walk in and flash your request is scribbling all over somebody else's hard thought. That you've spent all week thinking about, you know? That you spent all week thinking about, all all day coming up to the gig thinking, if not that, then this. You've stood on this stage, you're creating this thing off, you know, on the bounce off of the people, which you couldn't do up until the point that you're live. So... That is changing all the time anyway, depending on how people are reacting. You know, what you plan to do might not be even what you end up doing. And then getting different, um, you know, different interruptions that you don't need is just like, mate. Stop. <laughs> not now. <laughs> well, is it, what I liked about the book is that you do talk about all of these things and the, uh, the you know, the, the down things, but you talk about them in quite an amusing way, and it, it, it's nice that you don't cover any of that up. So, but let's let's park all those those DJ troubles aside. <laughs> and let, let's, let's not. Concentrate. I've got a lot to get off my chest. <laughs> well, we can, we can carry Cuffing on. Cuffing it up like a furball. Oh yeah. <laughs> but your your last choice uh, sounds more like 
the kind of memory that um, that keeps us all coming back, that makes us want to play records. So tell us a little bit about Leo and Bushwhacker and Love Story, uh, the Paul Woodford mix. Yeah, Paul Woodford. Yeah, well, it's it's a record that was around in the noughties. So finally is a Kings of Tomorrow track, Sonny Rivera, Julie McKnight singing. And you know, it was that track was out originally on Defected Records, and I mm. loved it as a, you know, a soulful house vocal track. It's a classic. It, you can still play it in its original version now. It mm. it is just it is a spiritual track because mm. for whatever people think it's about, you know, she is singing about going to meet your maker and how, you know, a death is received, but. It also talks about love and loss and the acceptance, acceptance of self, you know, just the real realisation. So lyrically and vocally is one of the perfect spiritually uplifting house music tracks. But then along came Leo Paskin and Matthew Bushwacker in the 2000s and they wrote a track called Love Story, which was, I mean, it it, it is a classic mm. house, tech house track, but it had a different kind of vocal on it. It had a more bluesy um, male vocal on it. And it was great as it was, but then they, I don't know whether it was Matthew or Leo or the, the pair together realised that the finally vocal went perfectly yeah, together it in it. with Love Story, with the instrumental of Love Story. So they put those together. And it was, again, for both sets of people, it was a great hit. Mm. Fast forward to 2023, and I am looking for tracks to do my essential mix. And I spoke to Paul Wolford and I'm like, oh, Wally, is there anything you can say <laughs> that people haven't maybe heard so much? And I spoke to Dan Eats Everything and he sent me stuff and various people sent me stuff for my essential mix. But the real starring moment was this, Paul Wolford remix of Leo and Bushwhacker versus KOT Love Story finally mm. and I included it on my essential mix and it was one of those moments that I got a lot of requests like where where's that yeah. who's done that remix that kind of thing and I played it um again it it was just one of those moments it was the last record that I played when I played San Remo stage at Glastonbury this year. Oh lovely. That must and have been delightful. Just watching that dance floor bounce to this mm. track and my nephew it was such a special moment anyway, my nephew Luke, 
who's a DJ, had bought his 20 mates. I couldn't believe it. Like, <laughs> he didn't just bring one mate, he bought 20 mates wow. to the tent. I don't think I've support, got 20 mates. <laughs> to, to support Auntie P, you know, Ooh. and it's just like, oh my God. You know, it, it's just so nice having family in the house anyway, family and friends in the house mm. anyway. Even though I don't particularly like enjoy having people behind me there are certain people that are allowed and Luke because he's a DJ as well and he really understands the culture and 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 the codes of where to stand and who to bother and who not to bother and when to bother me and whatever um so I love having him in the booth and they were all down on the dance floor when I played this track and he filmed it Mm. and I put the clips on my Instagram and then I got him and all his mates up in the booth and we just really enjoyed, Mm. really enjoyed that moment together and it was just in the changeover between me and Job Jobs and it was such a moment it was just wonderful and I'm still playing that record. Time marches on never ending. Time keeps its own time. Here we stand at beginning and in goes passing us by and I You know, that's kind of one of the most beautiful things about about um, being a DJ and, and, and playing, you know, music like house music that, that does take influences and mix them all together. I mean, that record's amazing anyway, because the, the love story part of it, actually, uh, the bass line's a sample of Devo, you know, the, yeah. the American punk group. So, yeah, so, I love so Devo. There's, there's so much, there's so much going on in those layers. You've got, yeah. you've got, the, you've got this uh, punk bass line, you've got this lovely washy housey synth thing then as you say you've got a much more soulful spiritual vocal that's being put on top of that yeah put all of that together and stick it in front of a load of people and, yeah and the power that that generates the the love that generates it, they, I mean, those moments funny, last don't they yeah they really do and it, it it's a moment that really did um it it, it filtered through because after that set and after that moment there are people there's a group of people who saw that set they landed on me by accident at san remo Mm. in glastonbury but they're from manchester and those people since that set have followed me all around the uk ever since they saw me play and saw and heard me play that record at Glastonbury. Yeah. And I wish I could remember all of their names because it's just 
gone out of my head now, but I'd like to dedicate that track to my nephew Luke, his 20 mates, and all the people from Manchester that were at San Remo that have since followed me at every gig. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think that's a lovely thing, and it's a it's a great record. It's communion. It's community. Absolutely. It's, you know, it's peace, love, unity, and respect. And it's you know it's great as well because you have done the hard miles. You've you've been DJing in different countries, different cities. You've done A and R. You've done PR. You've done TV. You've done all this stuff. And yet, when I hear you talk about that, you're, you know, we, we say about the, the hairs going up on the back of your neck and that sort of thing, you know, you can you can hear that there's still so much love for what you do. I love the oh, line. I absolutely love music. The line in your book where you say, I, I, love, I love it when people ask me what I do and I proudly say I'm a DJ. That's, you know, to still feel like that after all these yeah. years. That's great. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and I am proud of it and I'm more proud of it now than I have ever been. Mm. Because when I started DJing, it wasn't a job. It wasn't even a job to be proud of. <laughs> it was, you know, everyone thought, you know, soon she's going to stop and get a proper job. Yeah. And it's the job I've stuck the longest at. Yeah. So if that's not a proper job, then tell me what is. Mate, you've got a Lifetime Achievement Award from DJ Magazine. You have. More to come, more to yeah. come, more to come. <laughs> and there will be more to come, I've no doubt. But Not you definitely yet. earned the, the, the title of DJ. And uh, I'm so glad that you came to speak to us today. And it's been lovely talking about your memories and just uh, hearing your enthusiasm. I've loved it. Like I, I love music. It's just that simple. I've never, you know, maybe this is why... I'm not a super uber megastar is because I didn't, I haven't ever, ever done it for the money. Mm. It's always been, what about music? It, the music's got to be this way. And I've been very particular. And, you know, maybe people might not like the music that I play because I, you know, I'm also proud of the fact that I love vocals mm -hmm. and Why I not? will play lots of vocals. I will play lots of instrumentals as well, but I'm really vocal, melody, bass lines, beats mm -hmm. driven. Um, but music to me is like the blood in my veins. It, it always has been and it always will be. Well, I think that's the perfect note to end on. And thank you so much for talking to us today, Paulette. I really, really enjoyed talking to you today. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. I could, I've got loads more stories oh, to I tell. Know. <laughs> If you like this podcast, if you enjoyed this podcast, just remember for one second that you got to listen to it for free. And I know I don't work very hard on this pod, but Eamon does. And if you enjoyed it, then you owe it mostly to him, a little bit to me, to share it with your friends. If you know someone who you think would enjoy this pod, who's interested in music, who's interested in our nonsense conversations, just share the love. Put it on your socials, send a link to a mate. And if you really like it, but only if you like it, please leave us a review.